Welcome everyone to the culture as we end the week on a high by looking at the things that really matter. And again, people have it in for Western culture, particularly the kids who don't know very much about it. And so this is a not too subtle attempt to glorify Western culture, which I think has produced more freedom, more liberty, more happiness than any culture in the history of the world. And one of the things it's produced is great art of all kinds. Uh, we've talked about authors from Hemingway to Chandler. Uh, we've talked about pop music, which I love and we'll come back to. We'll do, some, we'll do a series on songs that matter to me and why. And right now we're looking at the great director, independent film director, Robert Altman. And today we end the note on, we end the Friday on a real high, Nashville, his magnum opus, his masterpiece, his 1975 movie, which is in essence about almost everything. And it is a great film. Uh, why? Altman is not seen as a technical director. He is about mood. He is about character. He is about an ambiance. He is about, above all, an ecosystem. And yet in Nashville, he took these things and applied them to technical filmmaking in a way that led to magic. And by that, I mean, by now, Altman knows what he's doing. He's, he's confident. He's made MASH, which has been a big hit. He's made the great, maybe the greatest, revisionist Western, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. He's even made the interesting failure we talked about last week, The Long Goodbye. But what he's really done is perfect his notion of an ecosystem. He's not interested in one character and one story. He's interested in the jungle and all the beasts in it. A couple of the beasts tend to be more interesting than others, but it's the jungle as a whole that interests Altman. And nowhere did he better capture the notion of the jungle than in Nashville. And this was done technically. And by that, I mean... Nashville is almost impossible to characterize. It's a satirical musical comedy drama. In other words, it's everything. And what it does is follow the people involved in the country and gospel music industry in Nashville over a five-day period. A huge cast of characters over a very specific period uh, to make comments um, about a presidential populist outsider candidate who is running for the presidency and is gaining Traction. This is back in 1975 before populism was on the rise by several generations. But it's the fusion of this Nashville record country gospel music industry with the political world. And it's what happens there. And what happens is he creates fully 24 main characters. It's an ecosystem. There is no one star of the show. There isn't Humphrey Bogart or Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart leading the way. There are 24 central characters. Um, and over an hour of the film of musical numbers, often written by the actors involved. And frankly, the music's almost never been bettered. I mean, the country music industry hated this film for a long time because the actors came up with music that was so authentic, so organic to Nashville that people like that music better than what was going on in country music for a while. And this caused great resentment, but it really works. An hour of musical numbers, because that's what the film is about. The ecosystem is predicated above all on the music. These 24 characters are there and they're almost uncountable storylines. Uh, it was shot on location in Nashville in 1974 and released in the summer of 1975. Um, unlike uh, The Long Goodbye and McCabe and Mrs. Miller even, it did even at the time receive critical and commercial acclaim. It was nominated for five Oscars with uh, the best original song going to Keith Carradine, 
Uh, Carradine was an actor, very famous from the Carradine acting family. Um, and he came up with the song I'm Easy, which won the best original song in 1975 for the Oscars. But all the music is just fabulous. Um, and again, Keith Carradine of, of the famous acting family doing a very light pastiche of Chris Christopherson, the great folk country singer of the day. Um, what it does is create this ecosystem. And again, you drop in and out like in real life on these characters. Um, many ways, Altman is a bit like Chekhov. They're characters who don't finish their thought. They're characters who go off on a tangent. They're characters we have over here what they're saying. Uh, this is frustrating in exactly how life works. And it takes several goes through the movie to really understand the totality of what's going on. It's one of those films that is better watched more than once, and that's a high compliment. Like life, as Chekhov got entirely right in his writing, you drop in and out, you half hear what's going on, you half understand the theme, and then people go off topic as human beings actually work, and, and it works. But being pushed technically to make space for 24 main characters in doing so and making that one idea work, that one technical notion that you can make a film with 24 main characters made even more difficult by an hour of the film is just the music, which is fantastic. Uh, he challenged many of the actors to come up with their own. Keith Carradine, again, writing I'm Easy, which wins the Oscar, but much most of the other music is fantastic. And into this very compressed time frame of five days, 24 characters, he somehow makes it work. And by technically overcoming this seemingly insuperable hurdle, what Altman does is create a slice of life. You see how life is. You see how all the jungle creatures react to the jungle and to each other. The jungle being the country gospel music seen in Nashville with a good dollop of politics thrown in. Um, it really is Gatsby-like in a way, and it reminds me of Scott Fitzgerald, because all these characters, whoever they are in the hierarchy, are on the make. They're all trying to better their station. So it isn't just country music he's looking at. It's America as a whole, endlessly churning, endlessly grifting, endlessly trying to move on. As de Tocqueville said in the 19th century, America is an industrious nation, a place of high ideals and low cunning. And that's what this film is about, high ideals and low cunning. Everyone is trying to be on the make, from the country music superstars, the kings and queens of the industry, down to the woman who's trying to leave her husband and start a country music career on her own. And like Gatsby, a lot of this mythology is made up, but it's no less potent for that. They're all chasing the American dream. It's about nothing less than America, ambition, greed, talent, high ideals, and low cunning put into microcosm. Um, another thing it's trying to explain, though, is, is beyond this broad universal notion, which technically somehow Altman makes work, and in overcoming the technical challenge of dealing with 24 main characters in a semi-coherent way somehow, and it's a miracle that it works, but it does. It really is a miraculous movie. It's also a movie of its time. It's about a country trying to pull itself together after the horrible desolation of 1968, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Uh, later on, um, Vietnam, Watergate, uh, the resignation, resignation of President Nixon. It's like the country, and Altman said this, has had a nervous breakdown. And in Nashville, these, these green seeds are shooting again as the country tries to draw itself back together. Terribly damaged 
by what's gone on, but still going ahead with the old American industry, the high ideals, the low cunning, the grifting, the endless striving, that's still there, struggling to get beyond what happened in 1968 and afterwards. Um, the screenplay of The Ecosystem of Nashville was written by Joan Tewksbury, who was a longtime uh, collaborator with Altman. She had helped him write McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, and you do have this sense like that of a community, the Nashville community. Um, it doesn't look down at the community. It says that, and again, these are Hollywood people coming to Nashville, that they all have every community. And I, I live in the political risk community. It's, as I put it to many people, I'm a big fish in a very small pond. Uh, but there are rules to that community. There's a hierarchy in that community. There are elites in that community. There are strivers in that community. There are obvious failures in that community, and there are frustrated strivers as well. It's all of them there. The two most interesting characters probably are Ronnie Blakely's Barbara Jean, who is based loosely on Loretta Lynn, the great country music singer. Uh, Ronnie Blakely plays Barbara Jean, who everybody loves, but who is terribly damaged by the process of performing. And it's hinted at has had several nervous breakdowns. Her husband manages her career uh, in a grifting sort of way. Lynn's husband uh, rather controversially managed her career. Um, again, Keith Carradine is based on Chris Christ Christofferson, a talented, quite sensual, rather, rather hedonistic, uh, self-centered character who everyone sees the greatness of but sometimes they miss the, the immediate hedonism and the shallowness that go with that greatness. Uh, and he's a thinly veiled effort, Keith Carradine, at Chris Christopherson. And then you have Lily Tomlin in her Oscar-nominated role as a gospel singer trapped in an unhappy marriage with two deaf children. Altman really can write women, as we saw in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And this continues with Ronnie Blakely's Barbara Jean and Loretta Lynn as Loretta Lynn, and then uh, Lily Tomlin as the gospel singer, uh, who has a tryst with Keith Carradine um, and somehow maintains her dignity through that process. And again, he really can write women and their striving, their frustration, their trying to be heard. This is well ahead of its time. The feminist movement is just coming in in the 1970s. And uh, I think that Altman is well ahead of his curve in writing some really compelling female characters and not just male characters. I mean, a criticism. We talked about Sergio Leone in the past, and he couldn't write women. They were all Madonnas or whores um, in kind of a stereotypical Italian fashion. Altman's the opposite. He writes deeply believed, believable, complicated women in the Lily Tomlin and Ronnie Blakely characters. And, and that pervades the script, that women are treated every bit as the equal of men here. Um, Altman... Uh, as always in Altman films, there's a lot of ad-libbing of the script. Actors love to work with him. Altman had a talent for friendship. My father, one of the nicer things he ever said about me, he said, you've made a mess of your life in a number of ways, but you have a real talent for friendship and pick good friends. And that I took as a high compliment. Altman surrounded himself with these creative types, encouraged them to be creative with him, and took the journey together. And that's why actors absolutely loved him and why he could get these large talented ensemble casts to take parts where they're only on the screen for 10, 15 minutes, but the magic occurs. He can get the lightning in the bottle really quickly and make that work. And that's a that's a strength of all, all of Altman's really movies. Again, the film was a box office success, unlike The Long Goodbye. And McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which had done been critically praised but done indifferently, 
This is the first big box office success that Altman's had in a while. You have to go back to MASH where it started for him. Pauline Kael uh, continues to champion Altman's work. Uh, she loved McCabe and Mrs. Miller and lauded. Uh, she's, of course, the very influential film critic for the New York Times at the time. Um, and she said at the time rather cleverly, you can't really talk about what Nashville's about because it's about everything. It's so ambitious, and yet somehow, technically, there's just enough structure to it to make it a slice of life, and that that works, and, and that the ecosystem is talked about. It can be seen almost as a docudrama of the Nashville scene. It's also a wicked satire. It's just good fun. Uh, there are all kinds of characters here, good and bad, who are a satire. The, the pompous old elite of Nashville are aware there's a younger group coming in, the Keith Carradine character, the Chris Christoffersons, who mix folk music, even some rock music and folk music with country music. The hybrid, the direction that country music eventually took when it really took off in the, in the late 80s and 90s, um, Chris Christofferson's kind of the granddaddy of this, and, and this is seen already that the old style, grand old Opry country singers are, are kind of uneasily aware that there's a threat to their dominance coming from the Chris Christofferson, Keith Carradines of the world, and that they're going to have to deal with this going forward. So you get the sense of change in the industry. It's a wicked satire as the old bunch try to hold on. Um, um, as Ebert said, it, you know, it, it somehow gets deeply into your soul. I mean, this film, you know, I've seen it because of our film club. And please do watch this. I love that many of you have written me and you're watching this as we go. Please do watch this as over this next week. You may even have to watch it a couple times. I think I've seen it now twice in a bit of a third time when I finally had to stop and, you know, get back to the day job. But it, it somehow goes beyond the immediate and gets directly into your soul what's going on. Um it's the moments, it's a love letter to people who are wounded. And that would be the whole country after 1968, the deaths of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Um, but there are these moments of grace where human beings, he hasn't quite given up on us in these shoots of American striving, which can be awful. And people do some horrible things to each other in Nashville. They laugh at this one woman who can't sing and say this will only work. Uh, if she goes topless, that she'll get a part of the political show. People are exploited. People are laughed at. People are mocked. It really is American capitalism, red in tooth and claw. But it also, there are these moments, as Americans can have, just when you're about to give up on us, as this com overly commercially obsessed, low-cunning group of people, there'll be grace notes. There'll be moments of grace. Lily Tomlin showing the love she has for her death sons. The old man, Keenan Wynn, grieving for his wife. He's only on the screen, Keenan Wynn, for maybe five minutes, but it's extraordinary. The grief for his dying wife. At the same time, his niece has come home, in theory, to, to talk to the wife and see her, but really as a groupie to, to try to sleep with as many of the country stars as possible. Again, she's horrible, horrible character. Um, played by Shelley Duvall rather memorably. But Keenan Wynn, greening for his wife. Henry Gibson, an interesting choice here, a very interesting actor. He'd been in The Long Goodbye as the, the creepy uh, guy who ran the sanatorium to dry out alcoholics. Here, Henry Gibson actually sings rather well. And for all that, he's the emblematic of old pompous Nashville. When there is, and I won't spoil it all, a tragedy at the end, he behaves utterly properly. After an assassination, he behaves, I won't say who or why or what, he behaves utterly properly and in the moment rises to the occasion. 
So amidst all this, this cruelty, this mockery, this low cunning, there are these grace notes of love and care. Lily Tomlin loving her deaf sons, the old man Keenan Wynn grieving for his wife, and Henry Gibson, who's been a pompous fop the entire film, rising to the occasion during the moment of assassination. Uh, as Haven Hamilton, um, the old country music duffer and singer, trying to desperately trying to secure his place as times are changing. But when tragedy strikes, he actually becomes the father figure he's been faking being the entire film. He rises to fill the stereotype that he's been up until then. Uh, it, Henry Gibson is fascinating in this, and it's it's a fantastic role. Again, he encouraged the actors to sing their own parts and. And they're not great singers, but that's not the point. They're out there performing, and that's what this is about. It's the striving. And, and Altman uses the singing to show American work, the work ethic of America. These people, yes, they, there's PR, there's a lot of fakery, there's a lot of surface, but what they really are are strivers, hardworking people trying to make, hit it big, which is what every American's doing. Um, there are these great little moments that you find going back. Haven, uh, Haven's tough, Haven Hamilton, Henry Gibson's character, his tough mistress, Lady Pearl, gives this wonderful, wonderful monologue about the Kennedy brothers. It's one of the nicest things ever said about them. I love the Kennedys, as you know from those of you who've read The Last Best Hope and, and, and absolutely think they saved the world from nuclear war. And she gives this great talk where she's sitting at a bar having a beer and she's talking to some outsiders and just says that they had come to visit both the Kennedys for, the, uh, for their efforts at election. She contrasts them, the sturdiness of JFK, his, his intellectual security with himself, with the wounded frailty of Bobby Kennedy. But she said they're the two people who showed up in town, of all the people who've come there, that she truly loved. And she's never really gotten over the deaths of both of them. And frankly, neither had the country. There are a lot of reasons for this. One of the reasons is that, you know, we weren't just crying for the Kennedys. I was trying to explain this to Sarah. We were crying for ourselves. This was the apogee of American power, say November 1963, when Jack Kennedy is shot. We have this bright, young, charismatic, eloquent, obviously capable, charming, intelligent president. After having had a string of fine presidents in a row, from the great FDR through the underrated Harry Truman to the very underrated Dwight Eisenhower to Jack Kennedy, between 1932 and 1963, American presidents on the whole were frankly magnificent at their job. And then out of nowhere, he struck down. And the country never really got over this. And the fact that, that he had all these qualities made it even harder. But the eulogy that Lady Pearl gives to the Kennedys, uh, just playing the role of Haven Hamilton's tough mistress, Lady Pearl, the eulogy, just those five minutes, that's magical. Nothing has ever been more heartfelt or better said about the Kennedys or how Americans feel about them. And of course, Altman is ahead of his time. This is how Paul Thomas Anderson got his start. Paul Thomas Anderson, who I think is one of the greatest modern directors, who made Boogie Nights, who made Magnolia, um, these great ensemble films of our own day, you know, this is the direct result of Robert Altman. I mean, directly, he is the king of all this creativity that was to follow. Um, and somehow, um, it all works. I mean, as Roger Ebert, the great film director said that it really oughtn't to work at all, at all, but it does. There are endless dimen dimensions that come over 
through through this degree of difficulty. It's like diving. This is the highest degree of difficulty. There are 24 separate characters. And then in the end, you feel, even though you've had only a snapshot, a thumbnail sketch of them. That's something that I do when I write. I write thumbnail sketches of historical people, trying to make them real for our community, for our audience. And it's incredibly difficult writing to, in a very few lines, maybe less than a page, describe, as we did in our book, FDR or the Kennedy brothers or Eisenhower or Nixon or Reagan. To get them, to get their essence is incredibly difficult. But if you can do that, then endless dimensions come in. And that's what Altman's doing, as similar to what I did in The Last Best Hope. He's taking these little thumbnail sketches of people and having you believe not only that it's real the way they're being described, but that there's a universe within them. As Walt Whitman, our great poet, said, I am multitudes, that there are multitudes within each of these characters. The degree of difficulty technically of doing this is almost off the chart. The challenge of making this work, it's such a chance, but it works somehow. And because of that, Nashville is about the entire American experience, as well as a country coming to grips with tragedy and trying to move on in spite of it. People getting bigger in spite of all the low cunning, all the American capitalism in its most brutal form, red in tooth and claw, but these moments of love, of grace, of us being something bigger. As Lady Pearl said, the reason I love the Kennedys is that they wanted me to they wanted me to be something better and I wanted to because they did. It's that notion of America. All its good qualities, all its bad qualities, all its complexities. Frankly, it's as good a read of America as de Tocqueville in the in the 19th century, which is almost unrivaled. In Robert Altman making Nashville, he makes a monument to everything about America, good and bad that you can think of. I couldn't commend this film more. I loved re-seeing this movie to the point that I took time out and saw it again. Please do watch it as we move along. Hope you enjoy that. That's our culture for this week. I think we end on a real high note. It's good to enthuse about a film. Unambiguously a classic Robert Altman's masterpiece, Nashville from 1975. We'll then go through Altman's dry spell and come out the other end. When he has a late career resurgence, we're going to look at two late films. First, we're going to look at The Player, his satire of Hollywood. And again, he's, he's as venomous as only an independent filmmaker can be of that ecosystem. Uh, he's less kindly to it than Nashville. In the end, I think Altman finds Nashville affirming, and I think he finds Holly, Hollywood in the end through The Player utterly bankrupt. But a great movie. I remember seeing it in the cinema at the time. It's when I first got interested in Altman and then Gosford Park, the famous mystery where Altman halfway through the, the, the movie makes it very clear he could care less who did it. He's much more interested in English aristocratic society and what's wrong with it. So we'll end with those two really interesting, fine movies before we head on. Probably after that, we'll go on to a one-off Van Gogh at Arles. Um, this is when Vincent Van Gogh's life fell apart just as his painting came together this brief period when he was waiting for his friend Paul Gauguin to come join him in a painter's colony. And this will, of course, led to nothing uh, soon afterwards to his tragic death. But in this one moment of hope and happiness, Van Gogh did some of the best painting ever done by any human being. I think Van Gogh is the greatest painter who ever lived. And Sarah and I recently went to an exhibition in Milan. And it really occurred to me that it's about this pivotal moment in Arles in France that we really should focus on. So we'll probably do one on that. Then we'll probably move on to five on Graham Greene, I think, is next. Probably for us, Graham Greene, the great British novelist. 
And Daryl, that's for you. Not the guy you want, but a British novelist, one of my favorites, Graham Greene, who really describes the decline in Brit the British position in the world, also what made it good and enduring, and also what made it bad. And I, and I think I can, we can find easily five books there. And then we'll go to five pop songs that matter, with, matter to me, starting with Peter Gabriel's seminal Salisbury Hill, uh, the soundtrack of my life, these five singles. Salisbury Hill is the song I played over and over again as I decided and my man for all seasons moment to leave heritage over my opposition to the Iraq war. When like, as I've said in many interviews, I felt like Peter Gabriel leaving Genesis and that's what Salisbury Hill's about. And so I'll connect that to my experience and why it's such a transcendent song. So tons to do on the cultural front because the culture is what really matters. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend. Everybody, please do subscribe. Please do give us the $70 so we can keep doing in addition to all the political revolution and foreign policy revolution we're trying to start, at the same time we can do the culture, we can talk about the things we're trying to defend with realism, the things that really matter. And so I would love you to give the $70. I'm about to have my espresso. I can literally see it as I'm talking to you for the price of one espresso a month, $70 a year. We can devote ourselves to this community, which is booming. And I'm so grateful for that. Please do give the 70 Please do subscribe. And the last best hope, doing great right now. Very, very excited with how well it's doing. Um, please do go on Amazon today and buy it. Today's the day. Everybody buy it today. We're right at the edge of being in the top 40, um, as we would call it. So please do buy it today and push us over. Also, when we're traveling in Washington in just a week's time now, I'm leaving with Jackie. Sarah and I are leaving next Saturday. Uh, we will do an hour-long or less than an hour, probably a 20-minute spot. But I will keep you up to date on the trip as we go along because it's that important to our community, and I want you to be along as ever for the ride. Have a great weekend. Love Nashville. Enjoy it. Get some popcorn, and on we go.